Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. It's where I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you in every episode. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today's story is one I'm really excited about. It's by Leslie Neka Arima, and the story is actually the, the titular story in her new collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. It's from Riverhead Books. In the conversation that we are having in this country about the need and necessity for diversity in our storytelling, I am so happy to present a story written by a woman of color and of African descent. Leslie is of Nigerian uh, parentage and grew up mostly in Nigeria and Louisiana. Leslie has won the African Commonwealth Prize and is a National Magazine Award finalist. Her specialty is speculative fiction. Um, and one of the things she does best is take the rules uh, of our world that, that we take for granted and she puts those rules into um, an alternate universe. And along those same lines, this story also shows the reversal of fortune from the world we live in today. Pay close attention to how our world will be refashioned in this story as a result of global warming. Um, I think that's about all I'm going to say for now. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Are you ready? Here we go. What it means when a man falls from the sky by Leslie Neka Arima. It means 24 hour news coverage, it means politicians doing damage control activists egging on protests. It means Francisco Fercal's granddaughter at a press conference, defending her family's legacy. My grandfather's formula is sound. Math is constant and absolute. Any problems that arise are the fault of those who miscalculated. Bad move, lady. 
This could only put everyone on the defensive, compelling them to trot out their transcripts and test results and every other thing that proved their genius. Neoma tried to think of where she'd put her own documents after the move. But that led to thinking of where she'd moved from, which led to thinking of whom she'd left behind. Best not to venture there. Best instead to concentrate on the shaky footage captured by a security camera. The motion-activated device had caught the last 50 feet of the man's fall, the windmill panic of flailing arms, the spread of his body on the ground. When the formula for flight had been revealed short months before, the ceremony had started unimpressively enough, with a man levitating like a monk for 15 boring minutes before shooting into the air. The scientific community was agog. What did it mean that the human body could now defy things humanity had never thought to question? Like gravity. It had seemed like the start of a new era. Now the newscast jumped to the mathematicians who discovered the equation for flight. They were being ambushed by gleeful reporters at parties while picking up their children in their sleek black cars on their vacations, giving a glimpse of luxury that was foreign to the majority of the viewing public who must have enjoyed the embarrassed faces and defensive outbursts from well-fed mouths. By blaming the mathematicians instead of the formula, Martina Fercal and the center created a maelstrom around the supposedly infallible scientists while protecting her family's legacy and their money. Maybe not such a bad move after all. Neoma flipped through the channels, listening closely. If the rumor that Fercal's formula was beginning to unravel around the edges gained any traction, it would eventually trickle down to the 2,400 mathematicians like her, who worked around the globe, making their living calculating and subtracting emotions, drawing them from living bodies like poison from a wound. She was one of the 57 registered mathematicians who specialized in calculating grief, down from the 59 of last year. Alvin Claspell, the Australian, had committed suicide after, if the stories were to be believed, going mad and trying to eat himself. This work wasn't for everyone, and of course, Kioni Mutahi had simply disappeared, leaving New Kenya with only one grief worker. There were six grief workers in the Biafra-Britannia Alliance, where Neoma now lived, the largest concentration of grief workers in any province to serve the largest concentration of the grieving. Well, the largest concentration that could pay. It was the same footage over and over. Neoma offed the unit. The brouhaha would last only as long as it took the flight guys to wise up and blame the fallen man for miscalculating. Cover your ass, as the North American saying went, though there wasn't much of that continent left to speak it. A message dinged on the phone console, and Neoma hurried to press it. 
eager, then embarrassed at her eagerness, then further embarrassed when it wasn't even Keone, just her assistant reminding her of the lecture she was to give at the school. She deleted the message. Of course she remembered. She became annoyed. She thought again of getting rid of the young woman. But sometimes you need an assistant, such as when your girlfriend ends your relationship with the same polite coolness that she initiated it, leaving you to pack and relocate three years' worth of shit in one week. Assistants come in handy then, but that was eight weeks ago, and Neoma was over it. Really, she was. She gathered her papers and rang for the car, which pulled up to the glass doors almost immediately. Amadi was timely like that. Her mother used to say that she could call him on her way down the stairs and open the door to find him waiting. Mama was gone now, and Neoma's father, who'd become undone, never left the house. Amadi had run his errands for him until Neoma moved back from New Kenya, when her father gifted him to her, like a basket of fine cheese. She'd accepted the driver as what she knew he was, a peace offering. And though it would never be the same between them, she called her father every other Sunday. She directed Amadi to go to the store first. They drove through the wide streets of Inugu and past a playground full of sweaty, egg-white children. It wasn't that Neoma had a problem with the Britons, per se, but some of her father had rubbed off on her. At his harshest, Papa would call them refugees rather than allies. He'd long been unwelcome in polite company. They come here with no country of their own and try to take over everything and don't contribute anything, he often said. That wasn't entirely true. When the floods started swallowing the British Isles, they'd reached out to Biafra, a plea for help. That was answered. Terms were drawn, equitable exchanges of services contracted, but while one hand reached out for help, the other wielded a knife. Once here, the Britons had insisted on having their own lands and their own separate government. A compromise, aided by the British threat to deploy biological weapons, resulted in the Biafra-Britannia alliance. Shared lands, shared government, shared grievances. Her father was only a boy when it happened, but still held bitterly to the idea of Biafran independence, an independence his parents had died for in the late 2030s. He wasn't alone, but most people knew to keep their opinions to themselves, especially if their daughter was a mathematician, a profession that came with its own set of troubles. And better, a mutually beneficial, if unwanted, alliance than what the French had done in Senegal, the Americans in Mexico. As Amadi drove, he kept the rearview mirror partially trained on her, looking for an opening to start a chat that would no doubt lead to his suggesting they swing by her father's place later, just for a moment, just to say hello. Neoma avoided eye contact. She couldn't see her father. Not for a quick hello. Not today. Not ever. They pulled up to ShopRite, and Neoma hopped out. 
Her stomach grumbling, she loaded more fruit in her basket than she could eat in a week and cut the bread queue to the chagrin of the waiting customers. The man at the counter recognized her and handed over the usual selection of rolls and the crusty baguette she would eat with a twinge of guilt. The French didn't get money directly, yet she couldn't stop feeling like she was funding the idea of them. Ignoring the people staring at her, wondering who she might be, a diplomat, a minister's girlfriend, she walked the edges of the store, looping toward the checkout lane. Then she felt him. Neoma slowed and picked up a small box of detergent, feigning interest in the instructions to track him from the corner of her eye. He was well-dressed, but not overly so. He looked at her, confused, not sure why he was so drawn to her. Neoma could feel the sadness rolling off him, and she knew if she focused, she'd be able to see his grief clear as a splinter. She would see the source of it, its architecture, and the way it anchored to him, and she would be able to remove it. It started when she was 14, in math class. She'd always been good at math, but had no designs on being a mathematician. No one did. It wasn't a profession you chose or aspired to. Either you could do it or you couldn't. That day, the teacher had shown them a long string of Rakal's formula, purchased from the center like a strain of virus. To most of the other students, it was an impenetrable series of numbers and symbols. But to Neoma, it was as simple as the alphabet. Seeing the formula unlocked something in her. From then on, she could see a person's sadness as plainly as the clothes he wore. The center paid for the rest of her schooling, paid off the little debt her family owed, and bought them a new house. They trained her to hone her talents, to go beyond merely seeing a person's grief, to mastering how to remove it. She'd been doing it for so long she could exercise the deepest of human traumas for even the most resistant of patients. Then, her mother died. The man in the store stood there looking at her, and Neoma took advantage of his confusion to walk away. The grieving were often drawn to her. An inadvertent, magnetic thing. It made her sheltered life blessed and necessary. The center was very understanding and helped contracted mathematicians screen their clients. None of them were ever forced to work with a client or provide a service they didn't want to. Neoma worked almost exclusively with parents who'd lost a child. Wealthy couples who'd thought death couldn't touch them till it did. When the center partnered with governments to work with their distressed populations, the job was voluntary, and most mathematicians donated a few hours a week. There were exceptions, like Keone, who worked with such people full-time, and Neoma, who didn't work with them at all. Mother Keone, Neoma had called her, first with affection, then with increasing malice as things between them turned ugly. 
This man, in the tidy suit and good shoes, was more along the lines of her preferred clientele. He could very well become a client of hers in the future, but not today. Not like this. At checkout, the boy who scanned and bagged her groceries was wearing a name tag that read Martin, which may or may not have been his name. The Britons preferred their service workers with names they could pronounce, and most companies obliged them. The tattoo on his wrist indicated his citizenship, an original Biafran, and his class, third. No doubt he lived outside of the city and was tracked from the minute he crossed the electric threshold till the minute he finished his shift and left. He was luckier than most. At the car, she checked her personal phone, the number only her father, her assistant, and Keone knew. Still no message. She hadn't heard from Keone since she'd moved out. She had to know Neoma worried, in spite of how they'd left things. None of their mutual New Kenyan contacts knew where to find her, and Keone's phone went unanswered. Maybe this was what it took for Keone to exercise her. On the way to school, Neoma finished off two apples and a roll and flipped through her notes. She had done many such presentations, which were less about presenting and more about identifying potential mathematicians who had a way of feeling each other out. She ran a finger along the formula, still mesmerized by it after all this time. She'd brought 57 lines of it though she would only need a few to test the students. When things began to fall apart, the world cracked open by earthquakes and long dormant volcanoes stretched, yawned, and bellowed. The churches, mosques, temples, fell. Not just the physical buildings shaken to dust by tremors, but the institutions as well. Into the vacuum stepped Francisco Fercal, a Chilean mathematician who discovered a formula that explained the universe. It, like the universe, was infinite, and the idea that the formula had no end, and perhaps, by extension, humanity had no end, was exactly what the world needed. Over decades, people began to experiment with this infinite formula, and in the process, discovered equations that coincided with the anatomy of the human body, making work like hers possible. A computer at the center ran the formula 24-7, testing its infiniteness. There were thousands and thousands of lines. People used to be able to tour the South African branch and watch the endless symbols race ticker-style across a screen. Then the center closed to the public, and the rumors started that Fercal's formula was wrong, that the logic of it faltered millions and millions of permutations down the line, past anything a human could calculate in her lifetime, that it was not infinite. They were just that, rumors. But then a man fell from the sky. The next generation of influential black voices 
can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. As they neared the school, they could see a few protesters with gleaming electronic placards, the angry red of angry men. Amadi slowed. Madame, keep going. There are only ten. But the number could triple by the time she was ready to leave. How did they always know where she'd be? The car was waved through the school's outer gate, then the inner gate where Amadi's ID was checked, then double-checked. When the guard decided that Amadi wasn't credentialed enough to wait within the inner gate, Neoma stepped in. Her driver, her rules. The guard conceded, as she'd known he would, and Amadi parked the car under a covered spot out of the sun. Neoma was greeted by Nkem Ozechi, the headmaster, a small, neat woman whose hands reminded her of Keone's. She had a smug air about her and walked with a gait that was entirely too pleased with itself. She spoke to Neoma as though they'd known each other for years. On a different day, Neoma might have been charmed, interested, but today she just wanted the session to be over with so she could go home. The class was filled with bored faces, most around 13 or 14. Had she ever looked so young? Few caring or understanding what she did, too untouched by tragedy to understand her necessity. 
but schools like these, which gathered the best and brightest that several nations had to offer, according to Nkem Ozechi, paid the center handsomely to have people like her speak. And it was the easiest money she earned. How many of you can look at someone and know that they are sad? The whole class raised their hands. How many of you can tell if someone is sad, even if they are not crying? Most hands stayed up. How many of you can look at a person who is sad, know why they are sad, and fix it? All hands lowered. She had their attention now. The talk lasted 15 minutes before she brought it to a close. Some mathematicians remove pain. Some of us deal in negative emotions, but we all fix the equation of a person. The bravest, she winked, have tried their head at using the formula to make the human body defy gravity for physical endeavors, like flight. The class giggled, the fallen man fresh in their minds. For Cal's formula means that one day the smartest people can access the very fabric of the universe. For many, the formula was God, misunderstood for so long. They believed that it was only a matter of time before someone discovered the formula to create life rather than to just manipulate it. But this was beyond the concerns of the teenagers who applauded politely. The headmaster stepped from the corner to moderate questions. The first were predictable and stupid. Can you make people fall in love? No. Can you make someone become invisible? No. In Kim Ozechi might have been embarrassed to know that their questions were no different from those posed by students in the lower schools. Then, again predictably, someone posed a non-question. What you are doing is wrong. From a reed-thin boy with large teeth. Despite his thinness, there was a softness to him. A pampered look. Nioma put up her hand to stop Nkemuzechi from interrupting. She could handle this. Explain. Well, my dad says what you people do is wrong. That you shouldn't be stopping a person from feeling natural hardships. That's what it means to be human. Someone in the back started to clap until Neoma again raised her hand for silence. She studied the boy. He was close enough for her to note his father's occupation on his wrist, lawyer, and his class. First, she'd argued down many a person like his father. People who'd lived easy lives, who had moderate but manageable difficulties then dared to compare their meager hardship with unfathomable woes. Your father and those people protesting outside have no concept of what real pain is. As far as I'm concerned, their feelings on this matter are invalid. I would never ask a person who hasn't tasted a dish whether it needs more salt. The boy sat with his arms crossed, pouting, she hadn't changed his mind. You never could with people like that. But she'd shut him up. In the quiet that followed, another hand raised. Not her, Neoma thought. Not her. She'd successfully ignored the girl since walking into the classroom. She didn't need to look at her wrist to know that the girl was Senegalese, 
and had been affected by the elimination. It was etched all over her, this sorrow. So, you can make it go away? They could have been the only two people in the room. Yes, I can. And to kill her dawning hope, but it is a highly regulated and very expensive process. Most of my clients are heavily subsidized by their governments, but even then, in case any hope remained, you have to be a citizen. The girl lowered her eyes to her lap, fighting tears. As though to mock her, she was flanked by a map on the wall. The entire globe splayed out as it had been 70 years ago and as it was now. Most of what had been North America was covered in water, and a sea had replaced Europe. Russia was a soaked grave. The only continents unclaimed, in whole or in part, by the sea were Australia and the United Countries, what had once been Africa. The elimination began after a moment of relative peace, after the French had won the trust of their hosts. The Senegalese newspapers that issued warnings were dismissed as conspiracy rags, rabble-rousers inventing trouble. But then came the camps, the raids, and the mysterious illness that wiped out millions. Then the cabinet members murdered in their beds, and the girl had survived it. To be here, at a school like this, on one of the rare scholarships offered to displaced children, the girl must have lived through the unthinkable. The weight of her mourning was too much. Nioma left the room, followed by Nkem Osechi, who clicked hurriedly behind her. Maybe some of them will be mathematicians, like you. Nioma needed to gather herself. She saw the sign for the ladies' room and stepped inside, swinging the door in Nkemozechi's face. None of those children would ever be mathematicians. The room was as bare of genius as a pool of fish. She checked the stalls to make sure she was alone and bent forward to take deep breaths. She rarely worked with refugees, true refugees, for this reason. The complexity of their suffering always took something from her. The only time she'd felt anything as strongly was after her mother had passed and her father was in full lament, listing to the side of ruin. How could Neoma tell him that she couldn't even look at him without being broken by it? He would never understand. The day she tried to work on him to eat her father's grief... She finally understood why it was forbidden to work on close family members. Their grief was your own, and you could never get it out of your head long enough to calculate it. The attempt had ended with them both sobbing, holding each other in comfort and worry, till her father became so angry at the futility of it, the uselessness of her talents in this one crucial moment, that he'd said words he could not take back. The bathroom door creaked open. Neoma knew who it was. The girl couldn't help but seek her out. They stared at each other a while, the girl uncertain, till Neoma held out her arms and the girl walked into them. 
Neoma saw the sadness in her eyes and began to plot the results of it on an axis. At one point, the girl's mother shredded by gunfire, her brother taken in the night by a gang of thugs. Her father, falling to the synthesized virus that attacked all the melanin in his skin till his body was an open sore. And other, smaller hurts. Hunger, so deep she'd swallowed fistfuls of mud. Hiding from the men who'd turned on her after her father died. Sneaking into her old neighborhood to see new houses filled with the more fortunate of the French evacuees, those who hadn't been left to drown. Their children chasing her away with rocks, like she was a dog. Neoma looked at every last suffering, traced the edges, weighed the mass, and then she took it. No one had ever really been able to explain what happened then, why one person could take another person's grief. Mathematical theories abounded, based on how humans were, in the plainest sense, a bulk of atoms held together by positives and negatives, a type of cellular math, an equation all their own. A theologian might have called it a miracle, a kiss of grace from God's own mouth. Philosophers opined that it was actually the patients who gave up their sadness. But in that room, it simply meant that a girl had an unbearable burden, and then she did not. The ride home was silent. Amadi, sensing her disquiet, resisted the casual detour he usually made past the junction that led to her father's house whenever they ventured to this side of town. At home, Neoma went straight to bed, taking two of the pills that would let her sleep for 12 hours. After that, she would be as close to normal as she could be. The rawness of this girl's memories would diminish, becoming more like a story in a book she'd once read. The girl would feel the same way. Sleep came, deep and black, a dreamless thing with no light. The next morning, she turned on the unit to see much the same coverage as the day before, except now the fallen man's widow had jumped into the fray, calling for a full audit of the center's records and of Fercal's formula. Neoma snorted. It was the sort of demand that would win public support, but the truth was the only experts who knew enough to audit anything all worked for the center. And it would take them decades to pour over every line of the formula. More likely, this was a ploy for a payoff, which the woman would get. The Fercals could afford it. Neoma told herself she wouldn't check her messages again for at least another hour and prepared for her daily run. A quick peek revealed that no messages were waiting anyway. She keyed the code into the gate to lock it behind her, stretched, and launched.
the run cleared the last vestiges of yesterday's ghosts. She would call Claudine today to see how serious this whole falling thing was. There'd be only so much the PR rep could legally say, but dinner and a few drinks might loosen her tongue. Neoma lengthened her stride the last mile home, taking care to ease into it. The last time she'd burst into a sprint, she pulled a muscle, and the pain eater assigned to her was a grim man with a non-existent bedside manner. She'd felt his disapproval as he worked on her. No doubt he thought his talents wasted in her cozy sector and was tolerating this rotation till he could get back to the camps. Neoma disliked mathematicians like him, and they disliked ones like her. It was a miracle she and Keone had lasted as long as they did. As she cleared the corner around her compound, she saw a small crowd gathered at her gate. Protesters? She wondered in shock before she registered the familiar faces of her neighbors. When she neared, a man she recognized but could not name caught her by the shoulders. We called medical right away. She was banging on your gate and screaming. She is your friend. No, I've seen her with you before. He looked very concerned. And suddenly, Neoma didn't want to know who was there to see her and why. It was just a beggar. The woman wore no shoes and her toes were wounds. How on earth had she been able to bypass city security? Neoma scrambled back when the woman reached out for her, but froze when she saw her fingers, delicate and spindly like insect legs. Those hands had once stroked her body. She had once kissed those palms and drawn those fingers into her mouth. She would have recognized them anywhere. Kioni? Neoma, we have to go. We have to go now. Kioni was frantic and kept looking behind her. Every bare inch of her skin was scratched or bitten or cut in some way. Her usually neat quaff of dreadlocks was half missing, her scalp raw and puckered as if someone had yanked them out. The smell that rolled from her was all sewage. Oh, my God. Keone. Oh, my God. Keone grabbed her wrists and wouldn't surrender them. We have to go. Neoma tried to talk around the horrified pit in her stomach. Who did this to you? Where do we have to go? Keone shook her head and sank to her knees. Neoma tried to free one of her hands, and when she couldn't, pressed and held the metal insert under her palm that would alert security at the center. They would know what to do. From her current angle, Neoma could see more of the damage on the other woman, the scratches and bites concentrated below the elbow. Something nagged and nagged at her. And then she remembered the Australian and the stories of him trying to eat himself. Keone, who did this? Neoma repeated, though her suspicion was beginning to clot into certainty and she feared the answer. Keone continued shaking her head and pressed her lips together like a child refusing to confess a lie.
Their falling out had started when Neoma did the unthinkable. In violation of every boundary of their relationship and a handful of center rules, she'd asked Keone to work on her father. Keone, who volunteered herself to the displaced Senegalese and Algerians and Burkina babes and even the evacuees, anyone in dire need of a grief worker, was the last person she should have asked for such a thing and told her so. Neoma had called her sanctimonious, and Keone had called her a spoiled rich girl who thought her pain was more important than it actually was. And then Keone had asked her to leave. Now she needed to get Keone to the center. Whatever was happening had to be fixed. They just come, and they come, and they come. Neoma crouched down to hear Keone better. Most of her neighbors had moved beyond hearing distance, chased away by the smell. Who comes? she asked, trying to keep Keone with her. All of them. Can't you see? She began to understand what was happening to her former girlfriend. How many people had Keone worked with over the last decade? 5,000? 10? 10,000 traumas in her psyche, squeezing past each other, vying for the attention of their host. What would happen if you couldn't forget? If every emotion from every person whose grief you'd eaten came back up? It could happen if something went wrong with the formula millions and millions of permutations down the line. A thousand falling men landing on you. Neoma tried to retreat, to close her eyes and unsee, but she couldn't. Instinct took over, and she raced to calculate it all. The breadth of it was so vast, too vast. The last clear thought she would ever have was of her father. How crimson his burden had been when she'd tried to shoulder it, and how very pale it all seemed now. Pretty intense story, huh? <laughs> What are the things I I love most about um, about this story is number one the fact that that our heroine has unlikable qualities about her. We are so flawed as human beings, and 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 I love the fact that we have a flawed hero in this story. It, it's also um, a story that talks about the, how the grass maybe always greener on the other side. Like the idea that somebody's gift, in this case, Neoma's ability to, through science, take away the pain of somebody else could actually be a nightmare. It's classic Twilight Zone stuff for me. And the idea that, that this seemingly great technology 
born from science could be so destructive to the wielder of that miracle. Um, it's definitely, you know, that life, life is a double-edged sword, and you really have to be careful which end you pick up. The world that she paints, the idea that it's Africa that is one of the last places on the planet where humanity continues to live and thrive is a particular interest to me. It's, it's the, the, the cradle of civilization, the birthplace of our human journey on this planet. And in Leslie's imaginings, it is the last place that we will touch and have an impact on, on our uniquely human journey. One of the things that, that really comes up for me when, when I read the story is the idea that humanity has always searched for the meaning of, of our existence here. And the idea that it would be science that finally cracks the code here. Um, you know, there's, there's some conversation in, in certain quarters of, of the world where we're talking about God and science, the idea that God and science may be the same thing, and that when we get down to the very, 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 very center of the smallest measurable unit of matter, that that energy that we find there might be called God. Who knows? But in this story, it, it is science that has actually given us an explanation like it has throughout the course of history for that which is the seemingly unachievably miraculous. And in an age where, you know, we are having conversations that include alternate facts and there is actually a dispute as to whether or not climate change is real. I just love that, that writers like Leslie are addressing themselves to the speculative nature of where we're headed as a species. Um, science fiction and speculative fiction for me has always given us the idea to take a very honest look at ourselves from that safe and removed distance of storytelling. Um, I love this story. And I love this woman's writing. Leslie Neka Arima. Remember that name. LeVar Burton Reads is produced by Julia Smith. Our editing and sound design by Adam Dybert. And a big thank you to Matt Gorley. And special thanks this week to Aaron Eberhardt for his help in producing the episode. And a very, very special thank you from my heart to Leslie Neka Arima for today's story, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. It's the title story from Leslie's new collection, available now from Riverhead Books. And you can find the audiobook version of the collection, narrated by actress Ajoa Ando. It's available right now on Audible. And please, if you love our show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. To find out more, visit stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar. 
LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at, at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.